Welcome to Reclaiming the Faith with Phil Baker, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. You can find links to all of Phil's resources at philsbaker.com. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen today and take a moment to share this podcast with your friends. Now, here's Phil. Hey guys, this is episode 109. It's my interview with Dr. Judd Burton on the origin and significance of the Apocrypha. And I am just very excited for y'all to hear that. I'm also super pumped for y'all to be able to hear another preview of song number one off my upcoming EP called Genesis. So this is a song called The Greater Man. Take a deep breath as my heart starts beating Listen as the king calls out my name Taste and see of the good things he has made Go to sleep and wake up to his wonder I wasn't meant to do this on my own I could never dream of the beauty Show me how could I begin to doubt your goodness and knowing I question your great love? How could I have listened to deception? My God, what have I done? Even still, you cover me with mercy. All right, so like I said, that was a song called The Greater Man, which is off my upcoming EP, Genesis. Look for it sometime in the early fall, along with the book that I'm writing called Faithful Witness, The Early Church's Theology of Martyrdom. Yeah, so be on the lookout for that. It'll be sold uh, most likely on Amazon. There'll be audio versions, Kindle versions, and uh, print-on-demand versions as well of that book. Please be in prayer for both of those projects as they are getting wrapped up. Also, please go check out Dr. Burton's websites, burtonbeyond.com and tioba.org. For more information about the many amazing courses Dr. Burton is offering, special prices going on, so go check that out. Also, he has many books you can uh find that he's published there. Just so much incredible information from Dr. Burton. So please go check that out along with a course on the Apocrypha, which we're talking about today. Finally, I'm blessed to be a part of Omega Frequency along with Kurt and BDK who are putting out great content every week. Go to the YouTube channels Omega Frequency and Omega Frequency Live. Become a subscriber there. And hit the bell so that you'll be notified when a new show goes up. You will not be disappointed. All right, well, let's go ahead and get into my interview with Dr. Judd Burton on the Apocrypha. Dr. Judd Burton, thank you again for coming on Reclaiming the Faith, man. This is just a, it's just a privilege for me to have you on every time. My pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, can you let people know a little bit about what you've been working on and what you have coming down the pike? Sure. Uh, of course, the lion's share of my work now is to the Institute of Biblical Anthropology, and I've developed a uh, new course program, certification programs. Uh, your listeners will probably be familiar with the ones that I had the last time we spoke, which basically consisted of biblical anthropology, biblical demonology, and I think that, that preternatural morphology had been out for maybe a month at that point. That's that's really become the hot topic. You know, lots of people signing up for that. That's, that's the Monsters 101 class, basically, looking at the vampires and werewolves and chimera and those kinds of things through the lens of the Bible. And I've developed new ones. I've got a new mythology course. It's basically a survey of, of world mythology. And look, again, all of these are looking at these, these topics through the lens of the Bible. And then I also have a new ancient Near East civilization 
program, and then I've got a Mediterranean civilization program. Um, of course, these are both geographical regions of the larger biblical world. Uh, so it's a it's a chance for folks to take a, a, a deep dive and developing those developing the curricula for for those have have been the bulk of what I've been doing. Um, finishing up a couple of books, um, the Gobekli Tepe in the Bible uh, title that Defender Publishing is going to be putting out. Um, I've also got a, a, a forthcoming book uh, called The Van Helsing Way, which expands on a lot of the, the material that I cover in the preternatural morphology class. So, yeah, there's a lot of moving and shaking going on right now. And, um, now is a really good time for people to, to tune in and try this stuff too because the the, the prices are, are basically as low as they've ever been and they won't stay that way. I'll just say that much for right now. <laughs> nice. Because that, those platforms are going to, they're, they're going to expand. I'm about to, to put in a new interactive um, uh, platform that people can, can be more interactive with and I'll have more lectures up and stuff like that. So that's, that, that involves more work and more overhead. So the, the j- just by virtue of the development, the, the course process, you know, can't really stay, you know, at the sale process I've been giving them, but they are pretty low right now. And so if folks want to, want to dip that toe in and now's the time. Excellent. Excellent. One of those courses that you have is on the Apocrypha. Yeah. Yes, there's a course in the biblical anthropology program on uh, on the apocrypha. Yes, yeah, and that's going to be the subject of our conversation today. So, just kind of, can you introduce us to that for for some, you know, particularly you know, like Protestants who've maybe kind of heard of that, maybe think it's mm. it's evil or something, you know? Yeah. What what is the apocrypha, and uh, also what role did the Septuagint play, or does the Septuagint play in its story? Well, uh, as to the first question, most people's familiarity with the apocrypha, at least on the Protestant end, I know this is how it was for me, was, you know, your Catholic friend shows you their, their Bible, and there are these books in there that aren't in yours, and you're like, what is this? Tobit and Maccabees stuff and Bell and the Dragon. What what is this, man? Um, but uh, apocrypha uh, simply mean it, it. You know, it differs from tradition. You know, there's Protestant apocrypha, there's Catholic, there's Eastern Orthodox. It's just sort of all over the map. It depends on who you talk to. Yeah. Apocrypha is sort of a generalized term for non you know non canon material. Um, and that it's a it's well, I say generalized because it's it's exceedingly broad. I mean, it, it encompasses not only uh, you know a lot of the material that people will be familiar with probably on on your channel uh, is uh, uh, your podcast rather that um, uh, would be like the Dead Sea Scrolls, the the Essenic literature, mm. which is which is from the Second Temple period. Um, at least the original stuff. Now, there's older stuff in there, like the Old Testament books, like Daniel and uh, Nehemiah, and you know, there's a whole laundry list of them that we have either either complete or, or fragmentary. Um, and then there's the original stuff that the Essenes themselves wrote. That's example of, of Jewish apocrypha. Mm. Um, that would be like know, the War and, Scroll. Say again. That would be like the war scroll. Yeah, the whole yeah, the whole laundry list of, of things that fall under the 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 umbrella of the Dead Sea Scrolls. You know, yeah. the Enoch stuff, the the um, the Book of Giants, the Genesis Apocryphon, yeah. um, all the all the teacher literature in there. Um, all all of that qualifies, um, and of course, even even early Christianity had its stuff that was sort of outside of the, uh, you know, the so-called Irenaean canon that had been circulating long before the Council of Syria met and, and in the years ensuing when Constantine, you know, had his council of bishops and said, hey, print me up 50 copies of the Bible, you know, tell me what books go in there, basically. Well, yeah. wasn't a whole lot of legwork to do by that time because they were already working off of, you know, the aforementioned church fathers, uh, 
uh, a list of, of, of inspired books, and plus the Septuagint was already in place as, as the Old Testament. But there were other things like the Infancy Gospels, um, the Gospel of Mary. There were, there were um, there's the Nag Hammadi stuff, the Gnostic Gospels, which make up an entirely different kind of apocrypha, um, um, which, you know, Orthodox Christianity would have considered heretical and right. rightly so. Yeah. Um, but you know, all of this literature that we're talking about, you know, generally qualifies as, as apocrypha. Um, now I see your second question, what role does the Septuagint play in all of this? Well, it's, it's interesting that while a lot of the original stuff, uh, amongst the, the Essene communities, particularly at Qumran, is being compiled and generated um, during the 3rd th- and 2nd centuries BC. Uh, in Alexandria, Egypt, you have this, this group of, of 70 um, Hellenized Jews uh, who are translating the, the Hebrew scriptures, the Tanakh, the Old Testament, into Greek. Uh, to reach a, a wider audience. Um, and we even find some of this material, um, you know, some of the, the, the Septuagint material has been found amongst uh, some of the Dead Sea Scroll material. Um, it, it's usually pretty fragmentary, but it's there in presence. So you've got, um, you've got two interesting things going here. You've got literature that's not, necessarily inspired canon but it's it's informed it's certainly informed uh and we know that there are uh new testament authors and even old testament authors that reference these traditions people will probably be in some capacity familiar with the book of jude uh, which takes a lot from uh enoch yep um assumption as does Right, as as do a few passages in Second uh, Peter as yeah. well. Um, so the fact that these guys are referencing this material doesn't make it canon, but it it does make it important. It mm-hmm. does make it theologically informative. Um, and so, uh, you know, the Septuagint um, becomes an important text for later generations too. I, I, not just for, not just because it's 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 the Bible that the, the first century Christians are using. I mean, the, the the New Testament hasn't, you know, for the most part, hasn't been written yet. Yeah. And so this is the Bible that they're you know that they're using in the Greek speaking world. Um, the Septuagint and in let's just say the Second Temple period stuff, the Dead Sea Scroll material. Uh, is also important because it it both of those texts and the books contained in them um, are important for better understanding not just not just that period in history but also uh, earlier periods uh, in the in the narrative of the Old Testament. Um, and the big example there is that, you know, for the longest time, the oldest copies of the Old Testament, you know, our Old Testament material that we had were Masoretic texts yeah. that dated from like the 12th and 13th century. Um, A.D. Yeah, A.D. We're not yeah. talking B.I. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, these are from med- medieval scribes that had, had inherited and compiled these. And so we actually have, and you can see diff- some differences certainly, uh, between those and these older traditions that we have that represent the older traditions of, of Judaism, which in turn influenced the development of early Christianity. Um, I think that um, uh, George Nigglesburg has done a really good job of, of illustrating um, what some of those influences were, that, I, and I've outlined some of them mm. already. Um, but he he's written a number of papers and a couple of books on the subject. So I would highly recommend Nicholsburg to anybody who's looking to really delve more deeply uh, into some of these connections we're teasing out today. 
Well, that's great, man. Um, so you kind of hit, hit on this already. Like there are different like versions of the Apocrypha with the Catholic, with the Eastern Orthodox, mm. the Protestant Apocrypha. Mm. Uh, what are some of the generally accepted books that would span those three denominational <laughs> versions, I guess? Well, you know, there again, I mean, it, 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 a lot of it is dependent on who's doing the accepting and who's doing the rejecting, which, yeah. which is implicit in your, your query. Yeah. Um, but I, I think the connective tissue here, um, although it's not apocrypha, it would definitely be the Old Testament material contained in the Dead Sea Scroll caches. Mm. Um, but I think that a case can certainly be made for um, uh, the Enochic material also having broad application. And of course, um, you know, historically, you know, stuff like Tobin and especially Maccabees, you know, covers this period that we're talking about now, this, you know, some things that are happening during the second temple period, uh, particularly towards the middle and the later, uh, later era, um, dealing a a, a lot with the, um, the Seleucid occupation Mm. of, uh, the Levant at the time. And so, um, you know, even, even though, Protestants and, you know, let's say Eastern Orthodox in general don't accept them as canon. They can't accept the historicity of the events, the narrative uh, that you find in in those works. Um, And certainly all three of the general traditions that you you reference uh, are going to acknowledge the importance of... um, uh, the Essenes, because we know that they were a historical entity, um, that they minimally interacted. They certainly separated themselves from the temple bureaucracy. That was the whole reason for the formation of the Essenes in the first place, is that they had become so dis- disenchanted with the corruption in the temple bureaucracy that they left. Um, and so just the, the acknowledgement of the, the historical presence of the Essenes and their, their intellectual tradition and theological tradition is, at, at the very least, going to be acknowledged by, by each one of those traditions, even if they don't accept them outright as, as canon or, or, for that matter, apocrypha. Hmm. So the Septuagint is written, at least begun to be written around 250 B.C.? I believe. Yeah, yeah, mid mid to late third century BC, end of the second century. Yeah, and so mm-hmm. like I, I've heard many, many times in in my life from from pulpits that God was silent uh, for, for yeah. from Malachi on. You know, at least until uh-huh. John the Baptist. Um, right. I, I, do, I'm right there with you. Do, do I, you I believe- got those sermons? <laughs> no, I don't believe that, but I got those sermons. Yeah. If so, you don't believe that? Why? Why not? Well, I mean, I, I think the 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 biggest uh, um, the biggest case to be made there for him not being silent are, are the the two caches of documents that we we just have been talking about the Dead Sea Scroll cache and the Septuagint. Um, just because there's not not any canonical scripture going on there, there's still I mean, there's still prophecy being fulfilled for one thing. Hmm. Um, the uh, that is the the sort of uh, uh, procession of empires that's predicted in Daniel as being fulfilled hmm. uh, during that period. Um, so I would hardly call prophecy being fulfilled God being silent, as hmm. it were. Um, but uh, the the presence of the Essenes. I think is important here because so much of what they talk about, the, the very phraseology that they use in their original literature, um, their their apocalyptic bent. You know, they were they were forward looking uh, for the Messiah, as all the Jews were, but they had they had a particular you know uh, uh, peculiar is probably the right word. It, it, it's peculiar to them. 
what's interesting is that by the time you get to uh, the end of this quiet period, so-called quiet period, yeah. uh, when, when John the Baptist shows up on the scene, um, people like me and, and Josh Peck uh, are convinced that he at least spent time with the Essenes because so much of his mannerisms, yeah. the austerity of his dress, uh, but especially the phraseology that he uses um, about the kingdom of heaven is at hand and the son of words like phrases like the son of man. Mm. Uh, these you find again and again and again uh, in, in the literature of the Essenes. And of course, Jesus, you know, echoed, you know, uh, a lot of that kind of phraseology too. Um, like sons of you are sons of light. Sons, so, exactly. Yeah, exactly. You know, and you get a lot of that sort of teased out in John, mm-hmm. you know, who's, who's using these sort of dualistic elements to illustrate the gospel. Yeah. Um, I suspect that that's got some ascetic connections as well. And although Josh has articulated it in, in his, you know, videos and, and documentaries and, and uh, a forthcoming book, uh, it's something that I've thought for a long time that the Essenes didn't just drop off of the map. I think that a lot of them found their Messiah in Jesus, and once many of them heard the message, uh, that was all they needed to hear. And you know, I ran into a lot of these early Jewish Christian communities while I was doing my dissertation research on on Bonius. Um, the the Elkasites and the Ebionites are, are referenced in other literature uh, as being connected to the Essenes, and they were, these are some of these early Jewish Christian communities. The Nazorians were another group, um, and so that's long been my suspicion. I just think that Josh has really done a, a good job of articulating that. He's not alone, but I think he's done a really good job of ar- articulating um, that. And so, you know, looking at it longitudinally, you know, beyond the inner biblical period, the second temple, second temple period. Um, I think it's hard to say that God was silent, you know, at, at that time that he wasn't still working. I, th- I think he, he was certainly speaking to the hearts of men uh, during this time. Uh, e- even if, even if inspired scripture is not being written, you've got a lot of material that is referenced by the authors of inspired scripture uh, being compiled and written during this time. And I think that's very significant because this literature, especially the, the Enoch material, Jasher, Jubilees, the Genesis Apocryphon, all of this stuff was oral tradition before it was written down, just like, you know, just like the Torah was oral before it was ever written down. Because the Hebrews don't have a written language until about the 11th or 10th century B.C. Uh, and they already had the mechanisms in place to preserve the accuracy of the law that was handed down, the message that was handed down to them. And um, the same can be said for this stuff that finally is getting written down uh, by the Essenes in the Second Temple period that's so informative of, you know, in the case of the Enoch material, the, the, Genes- the world of Genesis and the Antediluvian world, but also it's forward-looking like other original Essene material, or not, not, not original because it was an oral tradition initially, uh, but it's forward-looking and apocalyptic like a lot of their other stuff is. Um, you know, it clearly states that it's it's this book is written for a generation that's not yet come on the earth. Yeah. Um, so there, there's there's significant commentary being written on scripture, and the Essenes may not have even known that that's what was happening at the time. They just knew that they had to do it, hmm. that they had to compile and collate all this stuff. Uh, and of course the, the second temple period Jews, uh, that followed Jesus that became his disciples, not just the, the 12 disciples, but the, you know, the broader scope of his disciples that he followed, they would have all been familiar in some capacity with this material. 
that's why the it's you know for from my research that's why the Caesarea Philippi Panaeus episode is so important hmm. um, because so much of that harkens back to um, this Second Temple period literature and you know I all of the disciples you know must have been mouth agape you know as he was saying all this stuff and the location that he chose to say it in and so um yeah it's 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 i haven't heard a sermon like that in a long time where people are but i think i think a lot of it has to do with because we know more about that period now mm. Than we did even a generation ago, but I can remember specifically sitting in the Southern Baptist Church yep. that I grew up in, you know, in those pews, listening to the preachers, you know, talk about how, you know, and then God was silent for <laughs> 300 years. Um, but that's not, you know, that's not really accurate. I don't think that's accurate at all. And I think a lot of it is because we know more about that period now than we did even a generation ago. Yeah, that's good, man. Well, kind, kind of piggybacking on what you're saying, I'd, I'd like to discuss some of those apocryphal books um, in terms of the way that they helped shape early Christian theology. Like One thing that's coming to my mind is this, uh, this passage from Sirach uh, 714 mm-hmm. that I, I mean, it's just my contention that Jesus is kind of borrowing from, from that in the Sermon on the Mount. Like it says, okay, yeah. it says like, do not babble in the assembly of the elders and don't repeat yourself when you pray. That mm-hmm. sounds a little bit like, and when you're praying, don't use meaningless repetitions as the Gentiles right. do, you know, that kind of a thing. And I think Paul mm-hmm. in Romans 1 is kind of dipping into some wisdom 13, one about, um, uh, well, wisdom 13, one says, for all the people who are ignorant of God were foolish by nature. And they who are unable from the good things that are seen to know the one who exists. So it's like, mm-hmm. you know, Paul saying, you know, we see God in, in nature, you know, that kind mm-hmm. of a, a theme. And so we, we right. are, we're without excuse. So like, what, mm-hmm. what are some other uh, areas where you see early Christian theology maybe being shaped or influenced perhaps by some of the apocryphal literature? Well, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, and this gets into some tricky territory for some people, but, you know, as clear, clearly Jesus and John, you know, would have spent a lot of time together. They were family. And however, you know, however Jesus came to realize who he was, what he was, what he was made for, whether it was, you know, snap of a finger kind of a thing when he turned when he turned 13 and they had his bar mitzvah or, you know, it, it calm, I tend to think that it culminated, you know, when he was baptized, that yeah. the, you know, if there were any pieces left to that realization, you know, they, that it was then, yeah. um, clearly he had some indication of it. Uh, we get, we get, you know, we get pieces of that, you know, like the visit to, uh, the temple, you know, just before his, his bar mitzvah when he's, yeah when he's, talking to the elders with, with authority, you know, clearly, yeah. you know, that process was already in play at that time. Uh, but you know, that, I mean, ultimately that's kind of peripheral to what I'm saying, but that, that through the people that God put in Jesus, God, the father put in Jesus's life, including John the Baptist, you know, this was a kind of tutelage, you know, an exposure, um, to the things that Jesus needed, needed to know. Um, and again, you know, this is tricky territory for some people, you know, I can hear the critics now, you know, well, Dr. Burton's taken away from, you know, the omniscience of Jesus. No, I'm not. I'm just, right. I, I don't understand the process, whether it was instant yeah, or right. gradual. Yeah. It happened. However, however it did, yeah. but you can't, you can't take culture and relationship and kinship out of the equation because it's part of the narrative. And because, because John spent time clearly in my mind, spent time with the Essenes. Um, it was God's plan all along for this kind of phraseology and message to come out in the gospel, you know, with, you know, John setting the stage to begin with. And then Jesus, of course, delivering the ultimate message. Mm. Um, you know, would, 
would would baptism even have been you know baptizo the immersion would that have even been part of of not the salvific process but the testimonial of a person's faith had it not been for that that practice of ritual bathing that the Essenes took part in that John was would have been exposed to. Yeah, uh, that was made part of uh, part of the the testimony that that believers give. Um, that's why they, you know, another thing I heard growing up, you know, again and again was believers' baptism, believers' baptism. That it's mm. this, and and that's the theologically sound thing. There is that it is it is a testimony. It represents the. Um, you know, going under the water it represents the death and then the ascension right. uh, because of salvation. And so, you know, I think that's the legitimate historical question to ask, not just a theological, but a historical question is, you know, would that have even been part of of the message? Now, clearly it, w- it would have been. But for the argument's sake, would it would it have even been part of the the message, had there not been this chain of exposure and relation uh, with John and the Essenes, and then with John and Jesus? Mm. Um, so, you know, clearly the, there's there's some connective tissue there theologically. Um, and again, you're hard pressed to find anything theologically anathema to the message of Jesus uh, or the Bible in general, uh, for that matter, amongst the Dead Sea Scroll material. Um, um, there, you know, I'm harping on Enoch because it's it's so well known. You know, it's probably the most well known, if and and certainly the most controversial. Yeah. It seems like these days, but it it has so much. Um, that directly impacts the the you know Judeo Christian thought and theology uh, in terms of its exposition of the antediluvian world, but also in terms of its its expectations for the future, its its prophetic prognosticative stance, if you will. Can you give um, Can you give an example of that? Because like in in my in my assessment, that aspect is not as well uh, hit on as it is mm-hmm. Enoch's exposition of what happened you know, in sure. the days of Jared. So can you talk a little bit about sure. the escal- eschatological aspect of Enoch? Yeah, well, there are whole sections, you know, that are devoted um, to that, that thing. And the probably, probably the most important of them is the one that I've referenced the most uh, in our discussion today, and that's the one that the book was not made for, you know, the generation that it was compiled in. I mean, it was, it edified the generation, obviously. It informed the generation, but uh, it, it's very clear about, you know, a future generation will will find, you know, the mo- I, I guess the best way to say it would be the most use in terms of prophetic fulfillment, um, and you know, for the longest time, our, our 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 not just not just for uh, not, you know, not just the, the the sections of Enoch that deal with the Andalusian world, but all of it. You know, some of the the I suppose the less rock and roll sections of it, uh, you know, have been in fragments all around the world. Of course, the the Ethiopic. Um, version of it um has probably stayed the most intact but um in terms of having that that hebrew connection that linguistic connection we had to wait until 1947 uh for the discovery i mean that's just the discovery of the scrolls and then all the work all the paleography all the translation all the 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 preservation that the catalog, all of that stuff came later, and it was you know years before you had translations of the first, the first stuff, uh, and we're still getting you know fragments and, and translations of stuff, so it's it's kind of an ongoing process, uh, but you know the the it, it's clear in my mind that that the the generation that they're talking about. Um, because of this 
this nexus of of events that happened in the 20th century is mm. probably our generation. Mm. Um, you know, you, you add on to that other significant events that take place, you know, in that time window, 1948, Israel becomes a, a, a nation again that following year. Um, th- those those tumblers, you know, like tumblers in a lock falling into place, mm. um, to me, harken back to what what those forward-looking passages are talking about uh, in Enoch. And, of course, they're, they're in cynical literature in general, you know, they're looking for the Son of Man. They're looking for the Messiah. Uh, and they, you know, like I say, my 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 supposition in, in Josh's theory is that they found they found that in Jesus, and that shouldn't be again. When you look at all the the similarities and the use of phraseology and the, the the practices of John the Baptist and Jesus, that shouldn't be a huge surprise uh, to people that that they they recognize. Whereas other other Jewish schools of thought, like the the Pharisees and the Sadducees clearly didn't. They rejected Christ. Obviously, they rejected Christ outright. Um, but to my mind, that that seems to be some of the most important forward-looking material uh, in in the Essenic literature. Um, and you know, quite frankly, I think it. I think it's speaking about our time. I think this. This is a time that it's, it's becoming of most use um, because we're starting to see things happen in the scientific world, particularly uh, that that was really you know we haven't heard about really since antiquity. Um, you know now 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 we can actually create chimera and hybrids. Probably, probably have been able to do that for decades, um, but with certainty, you know, now uh, it, it can be done. Um, and any any combination of of animal and human DNA seems to be, you know, easily spliced uh, together these days. And it, you know, for for he who hath an ear to hear. Uh, this stuff looks a lot like what you read about in in uh, First Enoch. Yeah. So, um, with so many connections uh, from this scenic literature um, and the apocryphal literature uh, to to the New Testament thought, um, why do you think, mm-hmm. uh, or how did? Uh, these some of these books like work their way out of what was considered canon, kind of like you know Enoch was considered that way until you know a little bit right. after the beginning of the third century. Well, like one of the things that that I've seen in early Christian literature from like Justin Martyr and mm-hmm. Origen, like they talk about. Well, Justin talks about how some of these. Um, some of these books kind of like wisdom chapter 2 which is kind of like mm-hmm. a uh, like if uh, Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 had a baby that's mm-hmm. that's like right. what wisdom 22 is that's, that's wisdom that's chapter 2 that's a good two. description yeah um that's a good description <laughs> thanks well he's like you know and a lot of these books that show that the messiah would be crucified or or murdered and and that mm-hmm. he would be god and man the Jewish leaders mm-hmm. were trying to take away. And then like Origen talks about, he gives the connection to Susanna about, you know, these two um, leaders in, in the Jewish community of Babylon who tried to uh, have, have sex with Susanna and then she didn't want to. So they, you know, create this false trial or this, this, these false accusations to get her killed and they end up being mm-hmm. killed. And so Origen is basically saying that the Jewish leadership of his day have tried to remove any of those apocalyptic writings that show Jewish leadership to be corrupt. Sorry for mm. that long-winded explanation. No. But that would kind of go along with Justin's too, since the Messiah was crucified by, you know, or the Jewish yeah, I mean, part. But but what do you how do you how do you see the the apocryphal lit- literature? Why did why did it start working its way out of? 
common. Well, practice. you 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 very astutely point out that the the church fathers, the patristics, you know, reference this material all all the time. Um, I mean, you're hard pressed to find. You know, find, I mean, you go down the laundry list, Clement, Irenaeus, Origen, Tertullian, um, Justin Martyr, you mentioned, uh, they all talk about it. Um, some more than others, but, you know, they, they found, they find valuable, t- or they find teaching value, I should say, uh, certainly in, in this apocryphal literature because it informed, um, and they knew that, they knew that it informed, you know, the New Testament. You know, they could, Whereas, you know, we lost for centuries, well, we lost for centuries, they could read, you know, uh, Mark chapter 8 or Matthew chapter 16 when Jesus is at the foot of Mount Hermon and like, oh yeah, clearly he's doing X, Y, and Z. He's firing a shot over the enemy bow. Yeah. Um, So it's interesting to see how this material becomes so peripheral you know, and not that these guys maybe even equated it with canon. I, I don't think that they did. I think that I think that most of them believe that, you know, they believed in the the the, the spirit inspired canon that had been demonstrated by the surest authorship. I mean, that was really one of the the qualifying elements was was certainty of authorship. Hmm. Um. But they recognized that this other stuff was theologically relevant, mm. historically relevant, and good for teaching. Um, but as you point out, that begins to change, uh, particularly in the 4th century AD and 5th century AD. Um, and it's not that you... Not that you can, I mean, you can't really blame, you can't really lay all of the blame on the ecumenical councils. There's so much going on there. Hmm. Um, and, and even the, the, the canon of the Bible that we mentioned a moment ago had largely been, had largely been configured. Yeah. And so the bishops that, that, um, that Constantine, you know, convenes in three, it's 331, it's actually six years after. Uh, the Council of Nicaea, um, they didn't really have much work to do other than to just, you know, get the books, you know, made, the codices made and then printed out. Mm. Um, but it's it's when you, and this this is what's always kind of been interesting to me, um, is that you begin to, to see a lot of um, church fathers from the West, from the Latin West, yeah, weighing in on this stuff and then kind of poo-pooing it, um, and this is this is where we get the the Sethite connection um, amongst thinkers like uh, uh, Julius Africanus mm-hmm. and especially uh, Augustine of Hippo. Yep, and um, and even Africanus is saying this is just my opinion. Because it's right, mostly right. taught the the traditional right. way everywhere else. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But it's interesting that the 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 critique and the outright you know rejection comes from the Latin West. It's in the Greek East where you know these ideas are still kind of hanging on. You know, actually to an extent. Um, and it, later generations. Um, whether you're talking about the Roman Catholic Church or or the the proto-Protestant and then the Protestant Reformation, I say proto-Protestant because there were pro- there were Protestant-minded thinkers, as you well know, before um, you know before the actual sure. Protestant Reformation with Luther. Um, but a lot of these guys were big fans of Augustine. Including Luther. Oh yeah. You know um, the 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 big uh, you know the the big thinkers in medieval Roman Catholicism like um, uh, um, Thomas Aquinas. You know he was a, a big devotee of of Augustine's work, and um, Luther found found merit with with both of them. Calvin, so, of course. Yeah, Calvin. Um, 
Zwingli, all the all these guys, you know, were you know in one one shape or another influenced by Augustinian thought. Yeah. Um, and that carried with it the subscription to the Sethite view, and as 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 both you know, at first as Catholic Roman Catholicism spread, and then as as the Protestant movement spread, and then you have the Counter Reformation, mm. you know, which is sort of the blowback from. Uh, from the Protestant Reformation, it's just like dropping pebbles, you know, in a pond. You know, they they cross each other and they become more prolific, uh, and that's that's how these ideas about this the Sethite view become so entrenched in Western theology. Mm. Um, and uh, so there's a clear, you know, historical um, lineage. You know, we can trace this back to, and it, it starts in the Latin West. You know, really in the, the the days just before the establishment of of the Roman Catholic Church. Mm. That's good stuff. Well, you know, I, I'm dude. I really appreciate you coming on. You know, anytime you want to come I, on, this would be great. Uh, I'm, have, I'm honored. Yeah, I, I live for this stuff. Yeah, yeah, man. Um, so. Uh, just last question: If there's someone listening who's never read any of the apocryphal books, what advice would you give them, and where do you think they should start? I would uh, I would have them listen to this podcast. Actually, um, <laughs> no, I, I would I would say you know you know think of the Second Temple period when all this literature is being either compiled or produced um, as God not being silent but but speaking speaking you know more more directed you know he's choosing who he's going to speak to rather than than a, a general audience the general stuff comes later yeah. um, but if you had you know if you're not sure about it if you're, if you're bothered by it not being canon I understand that but you have to understand that that the there are authors of biblical books, canon books like Jude, like Peter, yeah. who reference this material. You know, and so if God inspired them to write these books, and you believe that, then you also have to believe that God inspired them to reference the apocryphal material that they're using. Mm. Um. So you know. I, I think probably the the best, um, probably the best place to start is um, you know actually getting a, a, and there are a number of them on the market that are good, but uh, you know get a get a a Dead Sea Scroll library, mm. you know get get this get this stuff from the Hebrew tradition, and just. Go through and look at how many books of the Old Testament are preserved in this stuff, and then start diving into Enoch and the Genesis Apocrypha and and some of the original literature um, that the Essenes wrote. You know, look at the, you know, start start looking for that phraseology. You know that John. The Baptist use and that Jesus would later use, mm. and you'll see how how important this stuff really is to better understanding the Bible and its message. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I would add to that is go take Doctor Burton's course if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> right, do that too. Yeah, that in fact that's a great that's a great way to dip dip your toe into the apocrypha because you get a little bit of everything in that class.
it fades.